I want to say hi to everybody at home. If you're watching online, can you guys say hi? <laughs> All right. Well, welcome to Wednesday night Bible study. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and turn to the book of Zechariah. And we're in chapter nine, starting in chapter nine tonight. While you're turning there, I just want to first and foremost, thank all of you for uh, attending, praying for, serving, and if you got baptized, um, praise God for that. So just an incredible event, and what made it special is just the body of Christ and the Lord. And uh, there's so much joy there, and uh, man, isn't it neat just to experience the Lord in and through how he works in the body of Christ. There's just really nothing better than that. And you don't need more than that. You know, when you have to look to fleshly ways to try to make yourself excited about God, then you're, you're really missing something. And I think that's uh, Lord's doing a work in our body where I think there's just the simplicity, simplicity of him in our midst and experiencing him in other people's lives brings about so much joy and that's that's really what i noticed at the uh, baptism and a lot of people are saying that that just it was just joy you know it was just simple joy and um didn't hurt that we had a lot of good food and all that stuff but you know that's what true fellowship is fellowship is you fellowship in the lord and and uh, you enjoy god in other people and you are relating to other people in the spirit while you're in the spirit, and there's uh, that's just like something, something that God gives us to make life a little more palatable until we get to heaven. Just so we get these little drops of heaven to make this life a little bit easier, and uh, so that was that was tremendous. A uh, couple things got we have a busy weekend, so the women's ministry is having their I'm going to call it a seminar, seminar brunch, and it's from 9 to 12 this Saturday, and they will be going through just some practical ways to live out your Christian walk, and some of those ways are going to be talking about how to do a devotion or how to have a devotional life, prayer life, they're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit, just different things like that. So um, I want to invite all you ladies out for that, and then... Sunday, of course, is church. Anyway, I'm excited to get into the Word tonight. We're in the book of Zechariah, and we're working our way through the book. We've gotten up to chapter 9. So now, as we move forward from where we've been in the book of Zechariah, I just want to remind you, this is a post-exilic book, meaning this is a book that is prophetical, that is written after the children of Israel have been in captivity, after the Babylonians have taken them, and they were there for 70 years, the Babylonians destroyed the temple, they destroyed Jerusalem, and so now they're back. We talked about when they went back, there was a time where they were instructed to rebuild the temple. They began that, the work got difficult, and they quit. They just had enough to make them feel like this is good enough. So as they went back, it would be disheartening to see the amount of work that was necessary. And 
see what they would have to do and um, know that they can never rebuild the temple to the level that it was before it got destroyed. But yet they had the command of God. That's what they were to do. And so they went, they started, and then, like happens often, when we start a work of God, Satan brings people, things, circumstances to discourage us. And that's exactly what happened. So the children of Israel, they rebuilt the temple to just a bare minimum um, amount to where they can kind of still offer some sacrifices and still do some temple stuff. But that was it. And the Lord was disappointed with that. And he sent a prophet named Haggai and a prophet named Zechariah to encourage them in the work. So Haggai was prophesying to them in regards to the fact that they had shifted their focus from the Lord's work to their own personal lives. Their own personal lives became more important than the work of the Lord. And they had justified what they were doing by thinking that they they had obeyed enough. But in reality, they got discouraged and disappointed and they quit. And so uh, Haggai uh, encouraged them to get back to work. Then Zechariah, the second prophet that's prophesying to them to rebuild and to keep up the work. He's prophesying to them, but he's really encouraging them. He's encouraging them through a, a series which we saw in um, verse, or chapters 1 through 6, a series of visions. You, you might want to say it was one vision in eight different parts. But basically these visions were encouragements to, to the children of Israel saying, I will be with you, that your work is going to be a work that is going to resonate much further than you know and that you can see that this Work will be a work where the enemies will not be able to stop you. The work will be difficult, but yet it will it will happen and you'll be able to complete what you started. Just obey me. And if you do it not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, you will complete it. And so now we're at a place in starting in chapter nine where they have these visions of encouragement. And then last week we saw in chapter 7 and 8, they had these four different revelations that God was showing them. And so we're really in the last, the last part of this book. And this last part of the book is, is basically two prophecies. One, we find in chapters 9 through 11. And it's really centering on the first coming of Jesus Christ. And then the book ends in chapter 12 through 14, focusing on the second coming of Christ. So as we begin tonight, one, it's a little more difficult to navigate these three chapters because we have to know the, the timing and the setting and what exactly is being prophesied about. And it, it's a little difficult to discern that. But we'll work that out as we go along. But what we need to do is to have a frame of reference. And when you're studying Bible prophecy, you have to have a frame of reference. Otherwise, it's going to be very confusing. So we want to start with our frame of reference to where the children of Israel are currently. And 
where our prophecy in the next three chapters is going to take them. So if we look at it like the children of Israel are back in the land, the temple's pretty much rebuilt. And then if we look down the road in the future from there, we'll be able to kind of discover different things that are being spoken of. And it, it all leads to and works towards the first coming of Jesus Christ. So if we can start there and work, work in that direction, we'll have a good understanding of what's going on here. So let's take a look. Chapter 9 of the book of Zechariah. So it says, The burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. So what's going on here? So this is where our frame of reference comes in. And you may recall that previously in the book, of Zechariah, we have a, a time stamp to sort of start off every chapter. So it's, you know, in the year, of, in the such and such year and month of King Darius. So we always have these time stamps. But we don't have that here. But understanding that this prophecy is from the standpoint of where the children of Israel are now, and then looking down this corridor of time to his first coming. And then you hear these, these cities' names. And especially, especially when you hear uh, Tyre and Sidon. If you've been with us a little bit um, on Wednesday night, Tyre and Sidon may ring a bell because we have covered that uh, in the not-too-distant past in the book of Zechariah. I'm sorry, uh, Ezekiel chapter 20. And so Tyre and Sidon was a place where it was very prosperous and very commercial. And it was on the coast, on the Mediterranean Sea. And it was a place where there was a lot of traffic going through there. It's a port city. And it was also a place that had natural spring water. And yet, this was a place that it was prophesied would be completely destroyed. So... We start to get a little trigger in our mind about Tyre and Sidon. And we start to to think about, well, what actually happened? How did this place actually get destroyed? And then those cities we mentioned previous to that are cities also in the north of Israel, of of the Jerusalem. So they're in the north. So it reminds us of a campaign that was set forth by Alexander the Great when the Grecians were in power. So that would mean that from the point of view or from the standpoint of where the children of Israel are are currently, that would mean that this prophecy that is being said here is still in the future from where they are currently. Now, as this prophecy is set forth, what the Lord is, is setting 
in front of them to understand is, is as you're settling in the land, in the future there are going to be future attacks. There are going to be future world powers. And we also saw that in the book of Daniel quite a bit exhaustively. We talked about the Grecian Empire and Alexander the Great and how his kingdom split and his four sons took over. And, and we talked a lot about that. So when we look at these, these areas here, what we're first seeing is these areas are north of Jerusalem and they are the beginning of the campaign of Alexander the Great when the Grecian Empire took over. And God is giving details. Now think about this. They are getting details about a, a campaign that is going to occur about 150 or so years later from where they are. So, again, this is one of the best ways that you and I can argue for the fact that the Bible is truly the Word of God. Prophecy is one of my favorite ways to do that. And as we see these prophecies, the detail of these prophecies, there's no other way to really explain it. And, and sometimes people do, scholars come and they try to explain it, parts of the book of Daniel, parts of the book of Isaiah, it's so crazy that these were written before these events happen that someone who can't accept that the word of God is the word of God, really the only thing they can do is say that these things were written after the fact. Which, if you're a, a good scholar and objective in understanding of, of biblical criticism and textual criticism, and then factoring in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you find out those things can't even really be true. They're not good arguments when you really look at them. But prophecy, and especially in, in the amount of prophecies that we have. So, you know, maybe you can say, well, one was made up. Well, how about hundreds of them? How do you explain away hundreds of them? Hundreds of them that are verified archaeologically and by manuscripts and so on and so forth. How do you explain that away? The only way that you would want to do that is if you don't want to believe. That you're so close that you have to end up suppressing the truth and the most obvious case and sense that the Bible gives us. But anyway... Keep in mind, as these details are given, they're given before uh, 150 years or so before these things actually happen. So he says about Tyre and Sidon, it says in verse 3, that Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust and gold like the mire of the streets. And behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. So, in this description, historically now, looking back, we know that this place of Tyre and Sidon was attacked by the Assyrians for five years, unsuccessfully. 
and then 13 years by the Babylonians unsuccessfully. This was a sort of a thorn in the side of Nebuchadnezzar, the uh, Babylonian king, that he, he couldn't conquer the city. And then it only took the Grecians and Alexander the Great five months. And what's interesting about this story is what happened was this city on the coast, it was fortified so it had walls around and it just be attacked. And the attacking didn't do much. But finally, when Alexander the Great got in there, he was able to have success. But what happened was he, he found out that secretly the people in this city of Tyre and Sidon had been building their city and moving their city out on an island. And nobody knew that. And so when, they, when the walls finally fell down, they realized that Nebuchadnezzar finally got the walls to fall down, but nobody was there. They were out on this island, and what Alexander the Great did was he made a causeway, sort of like uh, if, if you're familiar with the, the beach, they build jetties. They just put a bunch of rocks in there, and you can walk out on these jetties. But that's what he did. He built, uh, just put all the ruins from the city in the ocean so they were able to walk out and conquer the city. And what's interesting is the city was never rebuilt. Why is that interesting? Because cities are usually rebuilt in places where there are a lot of resources. And this is a place where there's a lot of resources. And yet, as God prophesied that once Tyre and Sidon was conquered, it would never rise again. And that's exactly, to this day, exactly what's going on. So now we move on, and, and we hear about some other cities. So uh, Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza shall also be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. And then in verse 6, it says, A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, and I will take away the blood from his mouth and all the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. So this is following the track of Alexander the Great's conquering, going from the north of Israel and then moving his way down to the south to the Philistine cities. So then in verse 8, it says, I will camp around my house because of the army because of him who passes by and him who returns. Another very, very specific prophecy because this is exactly what Alexander the Great did. He went from the north and went through Israel to Egypt. So he made one campaign through Israel. And Israel was stuck right in between Syria and Egypt. And so 
he marched right through their land. And the first time he marched through their land, he didn't mess with them. And then he went through their land again. And he's coming up from Egypt. And the Lord here is prophesying and telling us that the children of Israel in Jerusalem, even though Alexander the Great had all power to exercise against them and his desire was to conquer the known world. When he came up to Jerusalem, the high priest had a dream about this prior to Josephus. The historian talks about this prior to this happening, that the Jews in Jerusalem were not to hide, but actually to go out and greet King Alexander the Great, which was not very good protocol, but they actually did that. And they went out and greeted him. And the Lord actually restrained Alexander from conquering Jerusalem. And King Alexander, or Alexander the Great, actually made an offering or gave an offering to the high priest to offer to the Lord. This is what this is talking about. So you see the details of this. Let me read that again in verse 8. Speaking about the Grecian conquering of the land, it says, I will camp around my house. God will camp around his house because of the army, the Grecian army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. Alexander went by once and then he returned back home. And then it says, no more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. So now, get, get our bearings, get our perspective. So, from the point of view of the children of Israel, where they were at, God is giving them prophecies about their future. And right here, somewhat near future, 150 years later, and he's telling them, just settle in the land, honor me, and there are going to be things that happen there are going to be things that you don't see or don't know about. I'm going to tell you about them. But what's most important is that you walk with me. And I find this so important for us to know today. Because there are things we don't know in the future. Right? There, there are things lining up prophetically that we see and that the Bible tells about. But we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know exactly specific details of a lot of things that are going to happen. And the Lord is saying to us, he's saying what's most important is the promises that I have in the Bible that I've given to you, stand on those promises, find your hope in those promises, not in the things of the world and not of the things like for us, a lot of times we think, What's going to happen to America? Are we going to be socialists? Are we going to be communists? Are we going to completely fall? And we don't know that. And what the Lord is saying is, I do know that. And there, the big picture, a lot of things I've told you. You know I'm coming back, and I'm going to get you, and I'm going to take you out of here. You know the tribulation's coming. You, you know you'll come back uh, at the end of the tribulation. You know that I'm going to set up my millennial kingdom on earth for a thousand years. You know all those things. But right now, you don't know exactly what's going on. And what he's saying is, have confidence that I'm sovereignly in control 
of all these events. And because of that, find your hope in me and not in what you see. That's what he's telling the children of Israel. The children of Israel, they had no idea all the things ahead of them. But they were looking for their Messiah and that was important to them. And we're going to see that in the next verse. So look at verse 9. This is going to be a familiar verse to a lot of you. So verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So that is familiar to many of us because that was, is quoted in Matthew chapter 27 to where this is speaking of Jesus when he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and his disciples were told and to, told to retrieve a donkey and bring it back, a colt, a, a fowl of a donkey, and bring it back and he was going to ride that in. All of these things are signaling things for them. They're to be uh, things that in their mind would tell them kind of where they are in, in the history of God working out his plan, where they are in regards to salvation of their nation. But here's something very interesting. The, the Jews didn't think at all about a Messiah coming to save spiritually and to be a sacrifice for, for sins. And so when it says salvation here, what they were thinking is their Messiah is going to come and save them from their oppressors, their world oppressors. And that's why in Jesus' time, they were so geared towards the Messiah being a conquering king a king that would rescue them from the Roman Empire and save them from the Roman Empire. But the fact that the donkey was used to ride in suggests to them and would be a sign to them that Jesus is coming to bring peace. So when a king would ride into a town after a, a great victory, he'd ride with a big procession on a horse. And the reason he would do that is because it'd be a sign of conquering. I conquered, I'm victorious. But if a king rode in on a donkey, it would signify peace. And that's why Jesus rode in on a donkey. The second time, how is he going to come? He's going to come on a horse because he is going to come as the conquering king. But he first came to save. Now, there are multiple scriptures in regards to the Messiah being a savior Messiah. Isaiah 53 is the, a big one that comes to mind. Psalm 22 is another. But there are several that the Messiah would come to be a suffering servant first. But now put yourself in the children of Israel's sandals from their viewpoint. And they kind of got a, a little thing going. They're rebuilding reestablishing, they're being told there's going to be some trouble in the world. 
And that's going to come close to them in the future, but God will protect them. But then they're told right after that, that their Messiah is coming. And their Messiah is going to come to save. And that, that would be something that would be very encouraging and exciting for them. Just like it is for us. Now, the reason they're given this is because they, like us, are to keep our eyes on Jesus. And not every micro-movement of the world. But to keep our eyes on Jesus. But what's interesting, look what he says next in verse 10. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Ephraim is another name for Israel. It's one of the tribes of Israel. And then it says, And the horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So in verse 9, we know for sure that is talking about Jesus' first coming because it was quoted in Matthew 27. It was quoted there. But now we get a description of something that has not happened yet. Jesus is not ruling in this way from sea to sea. There's not world peace as described here. So I like what uh, many of the commentators that I read, they'll, they'll, they'll describe what's going on here. This is basically Jesus' two comings. And they describe it as like looking at the peak of a mountain across to another mountain. And they can't see the valley in between. Because there is a big valley in between these two verses. And Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 to about 9, read that for homework. And uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, they speak of, of this. But in the Old Testament, this church age, the valley in between the two comings was not described. And that's why Paul calls it a mystery that had been revealed when Christ came. And the mystery was that not only the Savior would be for the Jews, but for the Gentiles also. We live in that valley now. We have lived in that valley. You can call it the church age. The age of of the church. So, the Old Testament is primarily dealing with the nation of Israel and the Jews, but they had a, a command to be a light to the Gentile nations, to draw them to their God, to the one God. And they failed to do that. And then Jesus came in his first coming and they rejected him. You remember uh, Pilate asked if, that, if Jesus was their king. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. And so they cast Jesus off. They uh, neglected him, rejected him. And that's where then God began to move in the world, not through the Jews, but through the church. And so the church age 
was born in Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon this group of people, and the church age will continue until the rapture of the church, when the church is taken out, and then God will deal with the nation of Israel again. But that's another argument for why the church is taken out before the tribulation. Because the tribulation is going to prepare the nation of Israel to worship the true Messiah. So the millennial kingdom or the kingdom age can occur after that. So right in those two verses, you have Jesus' first coming and second coming. And so in verse 11, it says, And as for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And then he says, return to the stronghold, that's Jerusalem, you prisoners of hope. Don't you like that description? You're a prisoner of hope, meaning you may be in very adverse circumstances, but you have hope in Christ. You have hope in your Messiah. And that's what he's telling them. So what this is describing is this journey that the children of Israel are going to be on from where they sit currently until Jesus comes back and all the ways that God is going to be with them to watch over them and protect them and to preserve them for the millennial kingdom, which is going to come much later. So he says, he says, return to the strongholds, You prisoners of hope, even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. So what this is saying is, God... In this scope of time of prophecy from where you are until Jesus is first coming. But then he's also taking it past that to the second coming. And he said, I'm going to preserve a remnant. But he's also then speaking of something particular that happens with the Grecian Empire. So Alexander the Great, after he died, then four of his sons took over different areas. It was split up. But there was a major attack on the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes went in the temple and desecrated the temple and offered uh, pigs in the temple. And there was a group of people called the Maccabees, the Maccabeans, And they were like, I don't know, like uh, Navy SEALs for the Jews. And they actually conquered the Grecians and restored worship in the temple. And that's uh, why we have Hanukkah, why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah, is because once they restored the temple, then they didn't have enough oil to keep the candles lit. But miraculously, those candles were lit by God for eight days. That's why they celebrate the 
eight days of Hanukkah. But anyway, so verse 14, it says, Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with the whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. So that's what David would have used with Goliath. They shall drink and roar as if with wine and they shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day. So now that's when you when you hear that phrase in that day, that's pointing to the time of the tribulation and right before the millennial kingdom and the battle of Armageddon where everything's going to come to a head. So it says the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown lifted like a banner over his land for how great is its goodness and how great its beauty grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine the young women so as they were were hearing this they were to have a perspective of joy in the lord and all these things were going to take place things they could not have foreseen things that we're able to look back on now and see all these things that happen and how the Lord was encouraging them to keep their eyes on him, to keep their focus and their worship on him and that he would be their protector, that he would be their guide and ultimately he would come to restore them fully and completely. And first it would be when Jesus came the first time. And that's why it was so tragic when they rejected him. We'll talk about that in a minute. So chapter 10, it says, Now to ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds and he will give them showers of rain and grass in the field for everyone. So what, what the Lord is saying is that when we pray, we should be praying and looking to God to be our provider and our protector and our provision in, in everything. That's what he's saying. Because the tendency is, when things get difficult, the tendency is to begin to look at other things to try to either bail us out, to try to make us feel better, to try to give us a sense of peace. And what this is saying in the midst of, of all these crazy things that are going to happen to the nation of Israel, he's saying, pray for rain in the days of the latter rain. So the children of Israel didn't have irrigation systems and they weren't by bodies of water that were, were fantastically providing for them. They had to depend on God. So it's an interesting thing about Jerusalem. It's not, it's not an ideal place to put a city because of the lack of natural resources there. And the reason God has put the city there is because in order for that city to work, they have to depend on God. 
And so they had to depend on him for rain. So there would be the first rains would be kind of like October, November, and then latter rains would be March, April. And so what he's saying is there's, there's going to be different times. Um, people call this dispensations. You may have heard a theological term, dispensationalist. And that just means God works in different ways at different times. Which, I believe that's true. We're learning that here. So he's going to work in the millennial kingdom in a certain way. He's going to work in the church age a certain way. He works before the church age in a certain way. But the key is to know that salvation is not any other way. Sometimes people think, do the Jews get saved the same way we do? Yes, they do. There's no other salvation outside of Jesus Christ. There's not salvation by keeping the law. There's not salvation by uh, offering sacrifices and doing temple rituals and keeping the commandments perfectly. Jesus debunked that and pointing people to the fact that, that we need a Savior. And the law only gets us to the place where we recognize we need a Savior. And so we all come the same way. But God has worked through history, and the Bible has spelled it out, through different dispensations, and that's what we're seeing here. And so what the prophet is saying, he's saying when it's the time of latter rain, and this is speaking about the church age. This is what Joel prophesied about the time where God would pour out his spirit. This is what we saw in the, or see in the book of Acts. If you're reading your one-year Bible, you're in the book of Acts, and you're seeing God pour out his spirit upon people. And so in the church age, we, we see these gifts and these workings of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, what we're to do is during this season or dispensation that we live in, we're to pray for the latter rain to occur personally and individually and corporately in our life. So we should be praying that the work of the Holy Spirit would be going on in our church body. We should be praying and making ourselves available for the work of the Spirit in our own life personally. Because in the time that we live in, we are not going to be able to live out the Christian life unless it's lived out by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he, he contrasts that in verse 2. So that's why in verse 2 he says, For the idols speak delusion. So they were, were looking at their idols to find answers, to find power, to find security, to find hope. And they were doing that along with looking to God. So what they were doing was mixing their faith with the things of the world. So he says, for the idols speak delusion. So think about how messed up that is if you're a believer and you have the Holy Spirit and you have the Word of God and then you're going to try to find answers for life outside of that. It says there's delusion there. And we see that in the church. There's all kind of sneaky things creeping into the church that on the surface don't seem like any big deal. But I want to caution you 
Because the word of God is all that you need. And if you're going to, so big thing now, I was talking to Justin about this last night, the Enneagram, right? Some of you may have taken the Enneagram. You have an Enneagram number, and it's like a personality test. Well, I want to tell you the roots of that are completely pagan, and it's delusional, and it's the source of that. You start to research that, and you need to get away from that, right? And there's all these Eastern type of things that come into the church, and a lot of times people just maybe don't realize, you know, maybe you're naive to it, maybe you don't realize, but we have to be very cautious because Satan tries to get into our life and try to disturb our peace and our thinking in the same way that the children of Israel did. So yoga is another one. Psychology is another one. I can go down the list and people get all upset, but I encourage you, look at the roots of those things. They're humanistic. Psychology is humanistic. I'm not saying there can't be some interesting things you can learn from that. But if you're using that as a tool to find peace, happiness, serenity, forgiveness, to relieve your guilt, you're going to be delusioned. And you're going down a slippery slope of demonic activity. You have to be so careful. If you're into certain kind of music, be very careful. Be very cautious. Because music has a way of getting us to think a certain way getting us to feel a certain way. And if the roots of that music, think about who wrote the lyrics and think about what their worldview is when they wrote the lyrics the way they wrote the lyrics and think about if their desire is for you to be conformed to the world or be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this is serious stuff. So he says, the diviners envision lies. So think about that. So when we're getting into things like this, These idols speak delusions. The diviners envision lies. And then he says, and they tell false dreams. So that means if we're not centered in the word of God, then Satan can come and do, he can do signs and wonders. Did you know that? And we can say, ooh, wow, it has to be, it has to be God because there's a supernatural element to it. Well, be very careful. Because Satan does signs and wonders. He can do things that work outside of the realm of the natural. And how many people in church are falling into these traps and they don't even realize it? That's why it's so important that in the church, whatever church you go to, you must be in the Word of God. And if you're in a church that's embracing These type of things, you better run for the hills because that's not a good church. That's not a healthy church. And many churches are embracing these things that I talked about. Don't get me started on yoga. She says, uh, therefore, the people wind their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there's no shepherd. You see that? So what happens when we... Don't think that God is sufficient. We don't think his word is efficient or sufficient. When we think it's part of the answer, then what happens is we're going away from the shepherd. God shepherds us through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those two work in conjunction 
not independently of one another. Why? The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. And Jesus is the Word. So if we stick to the Word and trust in the Holy Spirit and walk in the things of the Word, we're going to walk in power. We're going to walk in the newness of life. We're going to have everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. And that's why there's such an attack on the Word of God. That's why Satan wants us to think that it's boring or it doesn't work or it's not relevant or it's old fashioned. Let me just tell you, there is nothing more current than the word of God. Right. When you get a little older, you see fads come and go. The word of God will endure forever. That's the most relevant thing that there is and that will ever be. And so don't believe that because that goes back to the original lie, doesn't it? So in verse 3, he says, My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the goat herds. What's that? That's song leaders. So if you're a song leader, you're a goat herd. He says, For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock. And notice whose flock it is. The house of Judah. And will make them as his royal horse in battle. From him comes the cornerstone. From him the tent peg. From him the battle bow. What's that talking about? This is pointing to the first coming of Jesus. From him, from Judah comes the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. What's the cornerstone? The cornerstone is the part of a building that holds the whole building together. Jesus was called the chief cornerstone. And what this is saying and what the prophet is encouraging is that there are all these false prophets, all these false shepherds, but there's one who's coming And he is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He is the tent peg. He is the stability. He keeps everything in place and stable. And he's the battle bow. He's the victor. And what the children of Israel are being pointed to is the person again. The Messiah. That they're to keep their eyes on the Messiah. That they're to look for the Messiah. That they're to pray and they're to take their refuge in him. And when they do that. They will be stable. They will be secure. They will be protected. It says from him, every ruler together. And then in verse five, it says they shall be like the mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. You see that? Everything for the children of Israel and for us, is predicated on is the Lord with us. So you can look at that maybe in a national, on a national level. Oftentimes we look at the strength of a military, strength of our economy, things like that as indicators of how secure we may feel. Those are bad indicators. The only indicator is where a nation is in regards to honoring God. 
by that standard, we're in trouble. And the nation of Israel, they would often look at how they were doing materialistically, of how strong they were and secure they were in the land, of how well their temple was functioning. And yet, none of those things mattered. The only thing matters was, were they honoring God? And when they were honoring God, God was with them. And like us, if God be for us, what? Who can be against us? Personally, we may look at our bank account and it may not look very good. Personally, we may look at our car or we may look at our future job potential and think it doesn't look that good. But don't look at that. Is God with you? If God is with you, He will work out His perfect plan in your life and He will blow you away by what He does. That is the number one thing. And isn't it true that most of the time we put education before God, we we put working overtime ahead of God, we, we put many factors ahead of God. And if we do that, we're like those uh, people that Haggai was talking about. We put all this money in our pocket, but it's like it has holes in it. We make, 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 and it just goes, and we're not satisfied. What the Bible teaches us is to prioritize our relationship with God, which brings about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Being in a right relationship with God brings about an overwhelming satisfaction, an overwhelming love and joy and peace. That's what's important. And then everything else comes from that. And when God is with us, no matter how things look, nothing can come against us. And this is what the prophet is telling the the nation of Israel, that God will be with you. And don't fall in those worldly traps that try to distract you from him because the only thing that matters is if God is with you. So in verse 6 it says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside. For I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. So what he's referring to is, so a couple things. So God cast them aside when the Babylonians conquered them. The reason he cast them aside was because their hearts had gotten so hard that the only way that they had a chance to return to God was to be destroyed and taken into captivity. And so now those who have gone back, he's telling them and reemphasizing the importance of keeping their relationship with him and making that the main thing. And as he's encouraging them in that, we can also look to the time where God had to cast them aside another time. 
And that was when they rejected Jesus as their Savior. And so now we live in the time where God has cast them aside, but he's also starting or has started bringing them back to him. So this restoration of Israel will be through a process. So in 70 AD, they were judged and cast aside because they rejected God. Technically, that happened when Pilate talked to the chief priests and they said, he's not our God. We have no other God but Caesar. Technically, that's when their relationship with God was set aside. They were cast aside. And then in 70 AD, they were conquered by the Romans. The temple was destroyed. And for 2,000 years, they did not have a land. And that's because we're in that valley where now God was working through the church. But miraculously, supernaturally, the Jews were scattered throughout the whole earth. But they were preserved. They have been preserved. And now they're being brought back. In 1948, they were allowed to have their land back. Since 1948, they've been regathering. Since 1948, they've been making preparations to rebuild the temple. And by the way, the Jews in Israel, the religious Jews in Israel, they're looking for their Messiah. They still believe in the Messiah. And you know how they're going to know if you ask um, a Jew in Israel, a religious Jew, how they'll know who the Messiah is? He will rebuild their temple. That's how they'll know. But the Bible tells us it's going to be the Antichrist that does that. So the Jews being cast aside, now God's starting this plan of, of restoring them and bringing them back. And as he's doing that, they're still rejecting him for the most part. And mind you, individual Jews come to know Jesus. Have you heard of a Messianic Jew? There are many Jews who have come to faith in Jesus Christ personally. We're talking nationally. Does the nation of Israel worship Jesus as their Savior? It's, that's kind of ridiculous to think about. There's, you just, there's no way that's going to happen. But God is beginning that process by regathering them, getting them in all in a place where he can work with them, preparing to rebuild the temple. But the way that's going to happen is they, they still have the most terrible time ahead of them that is going to be necessary for them to repent. And we're going to see in Zechariah pretty soon that they're going to look on him and who they pierced and they're going to weep and mourn. And that's the time nationally they will worship Jesus as their Messiah. And that will be somewhere in the tribulation period. Specifically halfway through the tribulation period. But we need to finish up. So verse 7. Those of Ephraim, another name for Israel, shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as if with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord, and I will whistle for them to gather them, for I will redeem them, and they shall increase as they once increased. So this is this process of God bringing them back. And restoring them. It says in verse 9. I will sow them among the people. So that that's the scattering. How they were scattered. 
and they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children, and they shall return. I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt. I will gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. So using Egypt and Assyria here is a way for them metaphorically to understand how God returned them. And what he's saying, remember how in Egypt I returned you to the land after you were there for 400 years. Remember how the Assyrians scattered you. He said, I'm going to bring you back. So remember that, but remember I'm going to bring you back. Now think about the Jews before 1948 scattered around the whole world having these communities that's described here where they would stick together. Has anybody seen Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah, go watch that for homework. So they're scattered in all these foreign nations all around the world in these little communities. And one of the ways that they maintain their identity was by keeping things like the Sabbath and certain ceremonies, but mainly like the Sabbath. And they would have a Sabbath that would that would keep them Jewish, that would keep them pure. And then when the time was right, when they were worshiping God and they were in grave danger throughout the world because there's such hatred towards them. And when the time was right, God regathered them in the land and he's continuing to do that. And you see what's happening in the land now and how threatened they are. Well, imagine if they were scattered around the world and they had no place to go home, no place for protection. So they're being protected now. God brought them in the land. They're being protected. Uh, Much of that is supernaturally because God is working out this plan to restore the nation of Israel, which will come to a full head in the millennial kingdom. So verse 11, he shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the river shall dry up and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. So I will strengthen them, Israel, in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. So we'll finish there tonight. But to put this all together, you see how these prophecies are such where they're trying to command the attention of the Jews and to us tonight and to see how God has worked out these prophecies in history tells us something today right now he's working out Bible prophecy he's working it out right now and he's telling us to keep our eyes on Jesus he's telling us to come out of the world he's telling us that today is not the day to be involving ourselves with the wickedness and evil of the world. It's time to worship God and worship him alone. And if we do that, we don't have to worry about all these things. We don't have to get caught up in all these things. We don't have to get carried away with all these things. And if we're honest, if I'm honest, it's hard not to. It's hard not to get upset. It's hard not to want to return evil for evil, but God says, don't worry about it. I have a much bigger thing I'm doing here. And what's most 
important in our lives as believers is to keep our eyes on Jesus, to walk in the Spirit. And what's most important for us to do is to preach and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's the day to do that. Now's the time to do that. The days are evil, and the time for Jesus, I believe, is to come soon. But man, we we have a field that is white and ready for harvest. And it's, it's up to us in the church age, it's up to the church to be salt and light in the world. Not to be the world, but to be the light of the world. And so, crazy prophecy. So, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word tonight. I pray that you would write it on our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would stir us up in our hearts and our minds for the things of you. I pray that you would put a right spirit in us, Lord, that you would help us to think rightly about the times that we live in, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that um, you would use us to bring many to salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a good night. And women, see you Saturday. Rest of you, see you Sunday.